And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. This comes under the category of the I knew him when. Uh, I met Tommy Viator when he was a young, uh, very, very junior uh, apparatchik in the John Edwards for President uh, campaign. When Edwards lost, Tommy had two choices. He could go to work for the presidential campaign of John Kerry or work for a little-known Senate candidate uh, in Illinois named Barack Obama, who was a client of mine. Uh, And uh, to our great fortune, he came with us. You all know him now as the uh, as as one of the uh, amigos on uh, Pod Save America and as the host of Pod Save the World, uh, two very very highly rated podcasts. Uh, he's an incredibly insightful guy, and I sat down with him in L.A. last week uh, to talk about the world he's trying to save. Tommy Viator, my old buddy. It's good to see you again. Great to see you too. Your dad uh, was, uh, he went the prep school route, Mm -hmm. St. Paul's. I I did the math on it, and it seems like he may have been there um, at the same time, roughly, as as two other guys, Bob Mueller and John Kerry. John Kerry. Yeah. I, so I had the chance to ask my dad about this. He passed away in 2010, unfortunately. Um. And he young, said, fairly young, yeah. "Yeah, it was it was way too young. He was sixty six, uh, and he remembered that both young of them." To me now, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but we don't remember- need to dwell on that. No, no, no. I mean, look, it, it's part of life. Yeah. He um, he knew both Kerry and Mueller. I don't think well, but Mueller was this larger than life figure even, even in high then. school. Yeah, he was the stud athlete, like one of the best players on the hockey team. You know this persona. Uh, and it kind of played out later in life, I think. And, you know, I actually had the chance to talk with um, Senator Kerry, then Secretary Kerry, about my dad and, and the fact that they knew each other a little bit while we were still at the White House. I was in some meetings with Bob Mueller, but, like, I wasn't talking. Yeah, no, I, you know? <laughs> I say the same thing. I, I like, honestly, he's kind of, He's the sort of guy who you don't talk when he walks in the room yeah. because he's like right from central casting. He's imposing. Yeah. And I, I always regret. Out of me. I, I remember one time I saw him in the hallway and I was about to run up to him and, and just say hello. Because my dad was like, you should tell him hello. He's a great guy. And uh, I whiffed on my chance. So I'm sure he listened to the show. So, Bob, give me a call. Well, I'll tell you, man, would you give anything to have to just be inside his head over the last couple of years and right now? And, uh, you know, I'd love to know how he feels about it. And maybe we will if he has to testify, but about the depiction of his conclusions in the Barr report. I would love for him to testify about all he learned. I would love to see a great movie or book written about the inner workings of that entire team over the last two years. Well, I'm sure you will. Someone's got to option that bad boy. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but be interesting to see <laughs> yeah. his character because uh, honestly he's a big mystery to the country yeah and you know i'm not one of those people that is angry at the Mueller report or the response to it but i do think there's an enormous vacuum uh and that's left the rest of us to fill in the blanks i mean think about comey going out and 
giving a speech uh, about Hillary Clinton's emails mm-hmm. and then his later letter. I mean, I don't know that that was appropriate, but certainly the political impact of that decision was massive. And there is a similar political impact to not saying anything and to letting Barr characterize it. Yeah. Well, it's hard to believe that that, that, is, where, uh, that is where it will end. I agree. We talked about your dad. Tell me about your mom. My mom uh, grew up in Chicago, Illinois, in uh, in Winnetka. Great town. Great yeah. town. Uh, loves it. And she moved to um, to Boston uh, and got married, got divorced, had my brother, and then remarried my dad. How, God, I don't even remember when that would be. So funny. The dates are so meaningless to you when you're mm-hmm. a kid. But they were a little older. And, uh, and they had me and my little sister. So, um, and... and- your your uncle mm-hmm. is uh, one of the great Tom Oliphant, one of yeah. the great political journalists of our time, really. Yeah. So my mom is a twin, and her twin sister was married to Tom and ultimately divorced before I was ever born. But I got to know him later in life, and he was this incredible journalist. You know, he was on he was a, on the book The Boys on the Bus. He was the youngest guy yeah. on the bus, right. I think. And um, you know, I think he won a, a Pulitzer for literally uh, jumping into wounded knee and parachuting into it, um, and then became a columnist for the Boston Globe. So it was very funny for me. So you grew up reading his... Yeah, I grew up reading mm-hmm. his stuff, reading the Globe. Like, you know, it was funny for me, though, to ultimately transition to um, working in national security press, because uh, my family wasn't predisposed to believe the government or to think they were doing the right thing. I mean, I, I think my aunt's phone was wiretapped at the time because they thought he might have a copy of the Pentagon Papers. Um, they broke, the FBI broke into their neighbor's house by accident because they were a little bit bumbling. So, you know, for me to it ultimately... It doesn't contribute a sense of confidence. It does not. No, it does no. not. And for me to ultimately go work on the NSC was a an odd swerve, but, uh, you know, maybe gave me some perspective. But politics was something that was talked about around your house? It was talked about. I mean, I was not a particularly politically motivated or, you know, I wasn't like a political junkie in high school or at age 18. Um, you went to Milton Academy. I went to Milton. A lot of politicians. Uh, yeah, a lot of politicians came Deval out of there. Patrick being one of them. That's right. Um, and I went to Kenyon College in Ohio for, for grad school, which, you know, put me in Ohio in 2000 um, during the, the Bush v. Gore campaign, right? Like, so center of the universe. But it wasn't until after I graduated and my cousin was a, you know, Wendy Button. Yes. She was a speechwriter for Mayor Menino in Boston. Mm-hmm. Mumbles Menino. Hilarious yeah. person to be a speechwriter for. Yeah, exactly. But like a wonderful man. Just kind and a good man. Um, she knew a guy who worked in like, you know, Kennedy's Boston office who helped me figure out a way to get an interview. And so I started interning for Kennedy after Ted Kennedy after I graduated. And that was this crazy summer. And that was because you you did you want to do that or did you not have something else that you wanted to do and thought this would be a good way to mark time until you figured it out? It was a little of both. It was I didn't come out of school a philosophy major from Kenyon College with a clear You didn't want to set up a philosophy shop? I did not. I did not, yeah. Good philosophy consulting. Um, And then I got this gig, and, you know, 2002 was an interesting summer to be on the Hill. There was a huge, you know, the midterms were uh, were that year. There was this huge fight about the Department of Homeland Security being unionized or not, which led to that horrible uh, 
uh, ad running against um, um, Max Cleland. Yeah. You know, and so like it was this indoctrination into policy and through the prism of Ted Kennedy and all that he worked for and stood for. And that's when I really got hooked. And you ended up working for John Edwards. I did. In 2004. So that and that's when you and I met. That's when we met. And so this was so I interned for Kennedy for a while and desperately wanted to get a job. And it became harder and harder and harder to get hired because Democrats kept losing. So finally, I was totally broke, unemployed, feeling pathetic and lame. And I applied to two things. One was to work on John Edwards' 2004 presidential campaign. uh, And the other was to be a Club Med Geo. And what that would have made (laughs) me do was move to some random place and like play street hockey with kids at a resort or whatever. I was like ready to to leave the whole business but luckily david ginsburg fantastic guy communications director for uh for edwards that's right yeah that's right. Res- rescued you from that rescued me from uh whatever he said you doing. won't have to play street hockey although the edwards kids had to be entertained you didn't get roped into that i did i did mm-hmm. um the edwards kids would come to the office we would hang out we would i remember pushing uh, jack and emma claire in the chair all around the office in circles you know Whatever it took. So tell me about John Edwards. Uh, I mean, I have my own experiences from that campaign, but you were you became close to them, and uh, you, I remember you very vividly as being a real young presence, dynamic presence around there. Yeah, I mean, I was so I worked for the communications director, which meant coordinating all the things he did and kind of getting to know a lot of people like you who are on important calls or emails or coming in for meetings. So it was this, you know, you learned by osmosis, right? But your day-to-day task was like fetch lunch or do some menial things. But that can't put a pin in that because there, I always try and note those things because there are a lot of, there are people who would, you know, they say, well, how do I get to be you? Right. Well, you know, you can't go from here to there and just taking a job like that where you can see everything exactly and kind of you know that is the way you leverage your way up that's right i mean you just learn by being there and um you know for the the best part of that for me was that last month you clean out headquarters right that month before iowa everybody is out in the states knocking on doors doing whatever's whatever you have to get do to, right. to win and I got sent to Iowa, and I drove the press van for, I think, literally a month. Yeah. And went to all of his events and got to see Iowa up close and personal. And so Edwards in 04, like, that was a great campaign that was run well by good people and had this little engine that could vibe to it, you know? Like, ultimately, these people overperformed and helped him get the VP nomination. And it was before any of the salacious stuff. I mean, to the point where I think people thought he was sort of asexual because mm-hmm. it was never in the conversation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, what it did for me was I was inspired by him in that campaign and motivated by the people. And w- what it made me realize was that the next job I had, I had to have that same feeling. And so when I found Obama and I started reading his book and obsessing over everything he did or said, um, I was ultimately, you know, I raced back after Edwards lost uh, and applied to a job on the Kerry campaign in D.C. and got an offer that I turned down. And everyone told me, you're a crazy person for doing this. You don't ever turn down a presidential campaign. But I just knew 
that was not the thing I wanted to do right then. I really wanted to work for Obama. We had a very small, I was obviously involved in the Obama campaign as well that year. We had a really small uh, operation. And I remember talking to you about coming out and and joining up with us. And Robert Gibbs mm-hmm. was the, uh, the press secretary communications guy uh, for that campaign. Right. Um, and then uh, you went to Washington uh, with him, but ultimately you found your way back to Iowa. Right, right. So talk a little bit about the uh, Iowa caucuses and the experience of of being in uh, Iowa. You know, I, I've always felt like people dump all over the Iowa caucuses. I think it's like the purest <laughs> kind of part of the process where candidates actually have to interact with people and so on. I, I, I'm a defender. I am too. I mean, I think the Iowa caucuses are the best part of politics, maybe up and until caucus night. And then there are real reasons why it limits the ability for people who have to work or who are disabled or elderly to be involved. And I think yeah. that's a problem. That they're trying to solved. address that. Yeah, they're trying to figure that out. But I mean, look, I got there a week before Obama announced uh, with the goal of setting up a whole bunch of events for him the minute he delivered that speech in Springfield, he got on a plane to Iowa. And so it was this crash course in understanding the caucuses, meeting all these new reporters. But then more than anything else, I, mean, I went to 73 counties with Obama where we took questions and did a town hall and delivered a speech. And from my perspective, I mean, he didn't, you know this, he didn't start a great candidate. Right. Uh, he'd, be the, he'd be the first to admit that. Yeah. I mean, the speeches were dragging. The answers to questions were too long. Like people were throwing fastballs at him all day, every day. And he had to figure it out and get a tighter message. But then also, I mean, when I first heard about like Section 702 or 215 of the Patriot Act and all the surveillance questions, it was in a backyard in Iowa. And I remember him getting that question and thinking, man, thank God he like was a constitutional law professor mm-hmm. and actually knows what he's talking about because I sure as hell didn't. Yeah. And they, they, you just it makes you a better candidate. Yeah. You know, he. Um, uh, it's interesting because it comes up now. Uh, I mean, you have um, uh, people like Beto O'Rourke, who you guys have, have devoted a lot of attention to uh, on Pod Save America. Um, and he is in certain ways experiencing some of the same thing that Obama did in that uh, he is debuting right yep. on Broadway. I mean, yeah. the, the, the the bright lights and so on. And he's in that process of trying to figure it all out as Obama was in that process. But the ability to uh, inspire people, raise the money, put the organization together, buys you time to do that. Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, I think you you always called it an MRI for the soul. I mean, he's he's getting the crash course in, in the MRI process. Yeah. I also think, you know, you know, the thing about Obama that was so helpful for us was that there was almost never an issue that was raised for, in a question to him that he hadn't thought about. Right. right? He had this core base of beliefs and knowledge and, and background. Um, so, you know, he could just kind of handle anything, and he knew what he was thinking. I think... I think Beto, um, he has to prove to the country that that's true for him as well. It yeah. very well maybe, but it's going to be a long process and a lot. Yeah, of I mean, he's a different kind of personality, you mm-hmm. know, than 
Obama, in a sense, um, you know, it's kind of unfair to say this is the yardstick by which we're going to measure people. I mean, uh, Beto, in many ways, is um, there are a lot of it's like he's a visceral guy and right. he connects with people uh, on that level, perhaps in some ways better than Obama did. But um, uh, but this process is a series of tests. And if you can if you pass one, you get the other. And this this question that you raise, which is, do you press do you, do you pass the substance test is is you you know you can't bypass that no you can't and this was i think a big question for obama early because i think there were some times when he didn't feel like the campaign had fully prepared a health care plan for example and hillary was out ahead of them and edwards was out yeah well he got his ass kicked at a a forum in uh, (laughs) las vegas early in the campaign and like there was no hiding it there was no hiding it i still hear about it from reporters you know yeah it wasn't great um, but we learned. I mean, look, I, I remember sitting around in Iowa on a, on a polling call in Paul Tooze's office, and we were losing to Bill Richardson in the Des Moines media market. We were Paul, like, Paul Tooze was our, uh, our Iowa director. Fantastic Iowa yeah. State director. Um, we were getting our asses kicked for a while. You know, it really took some work, and it took some – and it, you know what else it took? It was a ton of discipline because I remember thinking, why are we always talking about change Hillary's talking about her experience. People keep asking him, what's your experience? Shouldn't we incorporate that somehow? And the truth was, it was a change election. Right. And that discipline helped him win. Yeah. Yeah, that was very, very clear that when you posited change against years of Washington experience, uh, a change, change would win. But it was interesting. You were at all these events, and you probably saw the metamorphosis in him as a candidate. Iowa made him... A much better candidate, and by the fall, uh, he was operating on all cylinders. And right. I remember the the the, the fabled Jefferson Jackson mm-hmm. dinner. I think you were probably among those dancing to the hall yeah. with them. Big parade to yeah. the to the. Uh, that was really cool. So we um at the uh, at the Harkin Steak Fry which is another fantastic event iconic event iconic yeah. event a couple thousand people in a field they literally flip steaks it raises a bunch of money for the party Paul Tews had this idea I think it was Paul uh, to have a pre-rally and then march then Senator Obama over mm-hmm. to the main event in like this show of force uh, about how well we could organize and it really succeeded it worked yeah it worked and then the Iowa Jefferson Jackson dinner we did a similar thing so I remember my dad actually flew out for that weekend because Paul Tews, being the great boss that he was, and knew that there were a bunch of like 22 to 25-year-old kids whose parents hadn't seen them for a year who were wondering if this was a, a good life choice for a job and created this sort of like family event where actually the, the morning after that, the JJ speech, Obama and Michelle, uh, First Lady, spent a bunch of time with us and said hi to families and gave remarks saying thank you, like a truly unnecessary, kind, decent thing to do, but they did it. Um, so I remember having my dad and my stepmom march up the street with this group of thousands of people and like reporters couldn't believe it. Um, Iowans couldn't believe it. And then Obama went out and he gave that JJ speech and like that just lit a fuse under that campaign. Yeah. Yeah. It it is, you know, there is a passion in the media to kind of define every event as the decisive event in a campaign. There are very few 
decisive events in a campaign. I mean, it serves the interests of 24-7 media to say mm -hmm. this is a decisive event. But that was a decisive event yeah. that J.J. Dinner Obama and all the other candidates, Hillary right before him, uh, spoke in this kind of Roman Coliseum, yep. uh, the High V Center there. And, uh, and that speech was, uh, was kinetic. It was. Um, and it was like the last speech. I mean, it was like almost one in the morning by the time he got up right. there. And we were worried everyone was going to fall asleep or leave. But no, the place was just, the roof came off. Yeah, it was, that was a happening, man. That was, was an great. event. So I, I want to fast forward uh, to uh, the White House. And you went there as a, uh, an assistant or deputy, mm -hmm. assistant press secretary, uh, uh, working for Robert Gibbs. Uh, and then you transitioned, as you, point, uh, as you mentioned, to mm -hmm. national security. Um, what, what provoked you to do that? And how unprepared did you feel? <laughs> God, we were unprepared. To the point where, you know, on day one, we didn't even have email addresses. But what happened was, basically, um, Gibbs and Bill Burton said, okay, we're all going to divide up and, and have responsibility for various agencies. So I had the State Department, the Defense Department, labor and education. So it was this kind of hodgepodge mm -hmm. of issue areas. And then you'd have responsibilities on a daily basis if you traveled with them. But you know, basically what you did was your job was to prep the press secretary for that day's briefing. And over time, the foreign policy news just consumed more and more and more of my, my time and mm -hmm. my work. And um, there was also a National Security Council press office, which is like four or five people that are you know, you're, you're coordinating all the foreign policy specific agencies on their communication. And you're like helping every White House reporter answer questions they have about your foreign policy or national security strategy. And so after two years, um, Dennis McDonough had had the Ben Rhodes Deputy National Security Advisor for Communications job. He moved over to NSC Chief of Staff. Ben moved up to the into the, the deputy job in the NSC. And I ultimately came over to be the National Security Council spokesman. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it was, every day was you drinking from a fire hose. Well, speaking about drinking from a fire hose, you got there just as the Arab Spring yeah. was erupting. Yep. Uh, Libya, uh, bin Laden. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a baptism of fire it was wild i mean i i got that job and not sh not long after there was a massive earthquake in haiti that you know one moment you're working on something afghanistan policy the next day this earthquake happens and obama says we have to do everything we can to help people in haiti and five days later i'm in port-au-prince sleeping at the embassy for a week there's fourteen thousand marines coordinating assistance right i mean that's that's the white house in a nutshell right. um and, you know, the, you have to have people running the national security staff that have created a structure and a process that can help you manage those issues or else you're just swamped. You think that is the case now? I do not. I do not. But like Tom Donilon, Susan Rice, people like that, uh, Dennis McDonough, like they, they created those processes and structures. Yeah. I worry about this. I mean, it's hard for me to know, uh, understand how, how things are getting done. Me too. Uh, now, because there is no process, and if there is process, it can be overturned uh, with a tweet. Um, it's a it's a mystery to me because 
as you say, you know, the things that come come fast, they're complex. This administration's lucky that they haven't faced, you know, like these huge kinds of national security challenges yet. I agree. I mean, look, Umar Farouk Abdul-Matalib uh, was inches away from blowing up a plane um, and killing hundreds of people, right? There was the Times Square bomber mm-hmm. early on. There were a lot of... There's a lot of great work done by the national security team, but there were a lot of near misses. There was a package bomb that, thanks to a, a great tip, uh, you know, was intercepted that had been sent by AQAP. So things felt scary for a while. Um, and, you know, it takes, uh, I think about that all the time with these guys. You know, what happens if there is a serious terrorist attack or, you know, something happens because their instinct seems to be to crack down on civil liberties or, you know, take the next author- authoritarian feeling step. Yeah. Or ex- exploit the moment. Exactly. Uh, do you, uh, you worked closely with John Brennan mm-hmm. uh, there. Are you surprised that he's emerged as, uh, you know, John, uh, I always called him the, the lieutenant because he reminded me of these police op- detectives that I used to cover when I was a reporter yeah. in the Chicago uh, at the Chicago Tribune, uh, but he, you know, and those guys would throw words around like manhole covers, you know. Uh, so, uh, were, are you surprised that he's be, he's been as outspoken as he is? Yeah, I am. I mean, I, you know, I sat across the hall from John. Um, I would try not to bother him because he worked, you know. He was in at 5 a.m. Those guys were leaving at 9 or 10 at night, seven days a week. Yeah. You know, God knows I what never, ever, I never, I never, I always used to say I felt, uh, I slept better knowing that John never did. I mean, I, I never saw him leave. Yeah, I mean, I think he got either a hip or a knee replaced, and he was there the next day. Yeah. You know, like, in, so, um, but I really respect John, and I, I loved getting to work with him because he was always straight with me and would help me understand things that were complicated. Um it was completely surprising to see him, you know, unleashing on Twitter all the time. Yeah. And he, he obviously got the president's attention. Yes, he did. Um, did. do you, do you, would you have counseled him not to do that? I think that, uh, there is probably some value in, in picking your spots. You know, not every tweet, um, has to have three or four adjectives, you know, but you know, look, if, if of course on Twitter that, that, you know, you get a premium for that. Exactly. And I think, you know, once you start doing, um, a network contract, you know, he was on more and more often. So he was just out there more. And I think you get lulled into predicting things and then people try to throw that in your face. Um, so tell me about, uh, the, the night of the, uh, or the day of the bin Laden raid. First of all, were you read into it? No. Not at all. You uh, know, I was in the White House uh, with Favreau and Lovett and others working on the on the speech uh-huh. for the night before at the White House correspondence dinner, the famous speech where the big Donald Trump takedown. Uh, but uh, and I went to sleep early the next night. My wife woke me up and said, y- "You'd better watch this." And I looked at my device and there were all these messages from the white house but um uh no clue talking to the president what was going on i mean he was calm and completely 
um, unrevealing. I, I can't imagine giving a comedy speech with that in the back of your mind. Yeah, I mean, you know, that night was the White House Correspondents' Dinner. That is the biggest night in Washington, as you know, in terms of just yeah, people. Prom night. Glitzy, plomp, prom yeah, night, right. Yeah. So you're out way later than you normally would be. Right. Way later. And I woke up early and I, you know, got some brunch with friends in town. And I, I got an email or a call from Ben Rhodes said you should probably get in quickly. And I remember thinking, you know, how much do I have to dress up to do this? No one's going to be there. Can I wear a T-shirt? You know, like stupid things. So I rushed in and... um I went up to the National Security uh, Advisor's office, and I said, where is everybody? And they said, you should probably go down to the Situation Room. So I did. And I walked in, and I walked into a conference room, and there were a bunch of colleagues that I worked with. And um, one of them threw down a, a photo of bin Laden's head with a bullet in it. Hmm. I thought, oh, okay. This is going to be a long, interesting yeah. yeah. You weren't. You didn't say, gee, I wish I would have dressed better for this. <laughs> no, I, I was okay. I put on a button down. Yeah. What was your reaction when you saw that? I mean, uh, holy shit. Um, what are we going to say about this? When are we going to say it? There was a debate for some time whether we needed to go public that evening because there was so much sensitivity around the Pakistanis, the Afghans, you know, talking to allies. Um, but then I think Rhodes and I ultimately kind of kept making the point that we'd accidentally parked half of a helicopter in Abbottabad and then had to blow it up. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't a lot left that was secret or, or that we could hide. Uh, so then Obama went out that night and I think Rhodes have been working on those remarks. But luckily, I mean, the CIA had been working on not just this plan, but a rollout for what to do when it became public for six months. So there was a lot of pre-cooked materials to help us move quickly. You also were there uh, when uh, the president made his red line yeah. remark about Syria and through the, some of the subsequent uh, events there. Uh, how do you reflect on that now? I mean, so when he said the red line comment that day, my understanding uh, was he did so because we had some intelligence suggesting Assad might use chemical weapons, and he was trying to warn them not to do so. And that worked for a while. Obviously, it didn't work forever. Um, you know, I understand why he wanted to go to Congress. I understand the hesitancy to get involved. But, you know, the bloodlust of Washington and the pundits and the press corps was, was eager. And, like, uh, that's a dismissive way to characterize it. I mean, there is a lot of truth to the fact that you, you can't bluff. Yeah. Right? The Biden thing. Great, the Biden na theory. great nations can't bluff. Yeah. But you have to weigh that against um, Congress's role. And they wanted no piece of this. Yeah. So, look, in hindsight, he probably could have done what Trump did, which was blow up some runway somewhere uh, and not materially impacted the Assad regime, their chemical weapons stockpile, or really anything, but sent a message. I don't know if that's the right or wrong move. I'm not sure that would have been enough either. I think he would have been attacked. I agree. By Lindsey Graham and McCain and others Absolutely. who were uh, wanting a full engagement. Really. Yeah, they did. They did. And... So, I mean, the, the frustrating part about the whole red line debate is it's a conversation and a comment about Assad using chemical weapons. And ultimately, when people point to Syria and the mess that it's become, I think it was about the rise of ISIS. And we forget when we criticize the red line that, in fact, uh, we would have been striking some of the forces trying to take out ISIS. Mm -hmm. Right. So complicated region, strange bedfellows. Um, I would not have wanted to make that choice. Yeah. 
I mean, looking back, um, hindsight being twenty twenty, you might have played the cards differently, uh, but they weren't great cards. They were bad cards. I mean, yeah. it was a, it was a, look, the early part of the Arab Spring was much more hopeful than it was a year or two later. Um, there were lots of people, like John Brennan, for example, who feared uh, the instability and the vacuum that would come f- from it and the potential for terrorist groups to train and, and grow in that vacuum. But there was also hope that, you know, some sort of transition of power might have occurred um, and things would have improved for people in Syria. That clearly did not happen. Yeah. Well, the region itself, I mean, you see the retrenchment of authoritarian regimes in places like Egypt. Yeah. Certainly, we see it in Saudi Arabia. Um, yeah, much much less hopeful time. You, you left uh, the White House. Why did you decide to leave? I mean, it sounds like, you know, people are listening. They can say, that sounds like a pretty exciting gig. It was a very exciting gig. Uh, it was four years in the White House plus four plus years on the campaigns and in his Senate office. And I think, you know, at some point in that job, you are thrilled to wake up every day. You are returning every last call, sending every last email, working every weekend. And then you hit a point where you're just so exhausted that you know that someone else could do the job better than you were doing it at that moment. And I always thought four years was a good inflection point for me personally um, for the for the building to get through the election and then hand over the reins to somebody else. And it was just time. I, I don't, I mean, you know, leaving the building is hard. You miss the people. You have all these relationships and conversations, especially on the NSC, that are built on conversations about topics and issues and intelligence that you can literally never recreate. But um, it was still the right move. I don't, I don't regret it. You, uh, you and I were talking before we started rolling about the sort of uh, trough that one feels after leaving the West. You're, You're on a kind of carousel that's going 200 miles an hour. And all of a sudden you're, you're dumped off and your head is spinning. Yeah. And there, you, you're looking at your, your, uh, your, your phone or your BlackBerry or whatever, and all of a sudden there aren't 200 emails, and you're not in the middle of everything, and so on. Uh, it's an adjustment. It's an adjustment. You 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 look at your phone. There's no new emails. You turn it off. You turn it back on. There's still no new emails. Right? <laughs> like it it takes a while. Um, and it was especially weird. I spent about another year plus in D.C. Uh, before finally moving. It's hard, it's, it's strange to go from, you know, it's such a transactional city. It's such an industry town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be at the peak of the industry. Unlike there, L.A. Yeah, unlike L.A. Yeah. But like, I have no part of the Hollywood industry, never will. But like, you know, to be in this White House gig and then to leave it and still be in D.C., it's, it's a very odd perspective. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you started a firm with John Favreau, yeah. great speechwriter for the president great friend of yours. In fact, I, I overlooked the fact that you guys had this place, the pad in Chicago. Yeah, we did. During you were, you the were there. 2000. I was, I, I think I was engaged in some beer pong you there. Did. You did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you guys are obviously very, very close. You started something called Fenway Strategies, mm-hmm. an homage to your uh, baseball team uh-huh. up there in Boston. Um, ta- but that obviously... 
that wasn't enough for you guys. You you wanted to do something else. Was that a transitional? Yeah, I mean, it was a. There was sort of two parts to it initially. One was to keep working with my friends to you know try to learn a new skill set and to continue trying to do writing and communications work. But then also, John and I spent some time that first year or so out trying to write a TV show that was about young people working on a political campaign. And we wanted the flexibility to like fly out, take meetings, try to sell the thing, see if it worked. And ultimately that part didn't work out, but you learn a lot along the way. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I moved to San Francisco for a couple of years because a lot of the work I was doing was with you know, tech companies out there. Um, and it was good. It was does Fenway Strategy still exist? It does, but we're we're both gone. We've mm-hmm. handed it off to other people who mm-hmm. now own it. And you uh, you guys started this podcast, uh, keeping it sixteen hundred before the last campaign, right? Uh, that became very popular. Tell me about how uh, Crooked Media and Pod Save America. So, began. I mean, I think that like most of the world, we all thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win. And uh, after the campaign, we'd all go back to our regular lives and maybe keep doing the podcast as a hobby. And then when, when she lost and, and Trump was president, I mean, we were crushed. And I think part of that feeling of being crushed was um, guilt at having left the, left the game, not been a part of the campaign, not done more personally to, to fix it. And so... What we wanted Crooked Media to be was a place where you can, you know, have, hear shows about politics that are entertaining and that are more informative than, say, your average cable news hour. But then... Not that they're a bad thing. No, not they're a bad thing. But then, you know, if you want to figure out, like, okay, what I just heard is upsetting to me and I want to change that, tell you, give you the tools to take action in your own life and inspire action in people. And so... That has been the sort of mantra of the company since Yeah, I asked John at one point whether he considered what you do journalism. He said no. No, it's not. I mean, look, you know, my show, Pod Save the World, I have people on. I ask them questions about policy and substance and try to learn new information. I think, like, the interview we do with these 2020 candidates, that's probably journalism because we're, you know, seeking new answers and new information from them. But we're not, like... Foying documents and records. It's more analysis uh, and activism mm-hmm. than it is pure journalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about your. Well, first of all, you guys couldn't have imagined that it was going to take off like this. No. I mean, this is like, this has become a thing. Yeah. It's, and a pretty good living, I imagine. It's completely bizarre to me. Um, I think that a lot of it is right place, right time. I think there was a hunger for a better conversation about politics than we had uh, in 2016. I also think that people were looking for ways to get involved, and we helped you know, fill that void. So it's been really cool. I mean, I think we're trying to figure out now is what are the next sort of shows we should develop that get outside of just the comfort zone of Pod Save America, where it's people talking about politics, like Donald Trump today said, but shows that tell stories in a narrative format that bring you into the stuff we're talking about and care about in a different way. Maybe they're more entertaining and you learn about Pod Save America through a different show that we launched. Mm-hmm. So that's like, that's the next steps for us. Talk about Pod Save the World and talk about the world. Because uh, there's a lot going on uh, right now. It looks like Britain's about to implode. Yeah, it does. Uh, 
uh, under the weight of uh, Brexit, no Brexit, and and so on. Um, and Europe itself is stressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- so where do you see this Brexit thing going? God only knows. I mean, the last I heard, I mean, whenever, whenever, when this airs, we will be so wrong. I mean, it does feel like, I hope that we will get to a place where there's a second referendum because there has been so much pain over this that I think it would be worth people actually getting a chance to vote where they know the stakes involved uh, versus last time when they were just lied to about, you know, how Brexit might get them more money uh, for their health services. And, you know, maybe we have a little more transparency as to where the sources of money uh, that were running the Leave campaign came from. A lot of the same Russian influences are, you know, getting reported out now. Right. Um, so, you know, your guess is as good as mine as to what happens. But, you know, the... Why, why should Americans care? I think we should care because this is a close ally um, because the European Union is an important coalition uh, that's a, a great partner to us, uh, that the European Union, the project of place, things like NATO and the EU has kept peace on the continent for a very long time. And we think that international institutions are a good thing and that we should support them, uh, unlike Trump, who's thrilled to see them break apart. So, you know, there's a real downside and danger, especially for people who are young and living in, in London. Uh, anyone who lives in Northern Ireland is really going to be affected by this. So it's a, it's, it's a mess. You, uh, I don't know if you saw this election over the weekend in Slovakia, uh, where this uh, young woman uh, lawyer who was, uh, uh, you know, moved to politics just sort of as a uh, as community uh, service around an issue, uh, basically challenged the populists and uh, and won. Mm-hmm. Ran a campaign that was completely positive uh, and stunned uh, the the uh, the sort of right wing populists in that country. And I'm wondering if there's another turn of the page here. Is there a is there some uh, is there going to be a backlash too? Because right, I think the narrative right now is, you know, liberal democracies are kind of on the run here. Yeah, and these, uh, you know, right wing populist candidacies, Trump being one of them, are ascendant. Uh, and um, I mean, you see any signs of a sort of counter move, and could it have implications here? I, you know, I had not seen the Slovakia story, but I'll dig into that. Today yeah, you should. It's a great story. Yeah. yeah, but um, you're right that if you look at the last year or two, you know, right wing parties have increased their share uh, of their vote share in a whole bunch of places. You know, Austria, Italy, like the list goes on and on, and it is disconcerting. I mean, as you know, when, once you take power or get more control, then you have to deliver on some of the pro- promises you made. Uh, which is where I think we often see things swing back. You know, I'd love for there to be some backlash to the backlash. I just haven't seen it yet. Why do you Why do you think, Tommy, that there's been such fertility for these movements? I think that nationalism and demagoguery and and blaming immigrants and others uh, for all the problems in your country is a technique that is uh, goes back centuries and often works when people are struggling economically and um, a lot of these really 
nasty right-wing parties have just been kind of living beneath the surface for a long time. And so I don't think there's any magic to it, but I think when you have someone like Steve Bannon running around or you have a bunch of billionaires in Europe trying to help them, you know, communicate more uh, when you have the internet making yeah, it easy and to reach billionaires people. in Moscow. Exactly. But, uh, you know, I also, I think in a way that, that lets uh, supporters of liberal democracies and believers in capitalism off the hook yeah, I agree. a little bit because people are reacting to something that's real. It's not all racism. It's not all, you know, it's a rational choice on the part of a lot of people to essentially take a hammer to a system that they think is not serving them well. Yeah, I think that distrust and, in, in, I mean, in some cases, hatred of the establishment uh, is something you see on the left and the right. I mean, look at, at France the yellow vest protests mm -hmm. that you know started with this additional tax on on fuel but really is a, a collection of grievances that have to do with economic inequality i mean a lot of people in charge have been asleep at the switch when it comes to getting health care you know wages going up taking care of people in countries not just in the u.s but across the across the globe and this is a backlash mm -hmm. there are a couple of other uh, things going on that we should uh, touch on uh, one of them we'll, we'll probably um, air this discussion the day before the election in uh, Israel mm -hmm. uh, and um, what what are your observations of that BB made the um, obligatory stop at the Oval Office uh, in the final days of his campaign uh, BB Netanyahu yeah I mean it's interesting to watch Trump is obviously giving BB every bit of support he can. He delivered uh, this this pledge to let Israel control the Golan Heights uh, during that visit in the Oval Office. Um, we'll see if it worked. I mean, it, Israeli politics are weird because you have so many different parties and they have a very low threshold to get seats in the Knesset. I think it's like two and a half percent or three mm -hmm. percent or something like that. So basically you need a whole bunch of little parties to win and then you forge a coalition with them and then you can take control. That's why BB made this deal recently. The Kahanists. Yeah, nasty, firmly racist. Right. They've been compared to Nazis, this Israeli party. Um, and so the, the threshold between victory for BB and defeat is so small and it's so diffuse among the country that it's, it's impossible to predict. I think... You know, obviously, I'm not a Netanyahu fan. Uh, I would love to see Benny Gantz in this coalition win. But I don't think that's going to fundamentally change the prospects for peace. Uh, hopeful, I don't know what it'll do to the U.S.-Israel relationship. But, you know, the the trajectory politically is, is not great. It's to the right. Yeah, well, Gantz, uh, as, uh, in service of his candidacy, has been pretty hawkish on... Yes. on uh, on the Palestinians and the and the peace process, right? Yeah, I mean, he's attacking Netanyahu for essentially not bulldozing a, a Palestinian village, right? There's a lot of really disconcerting things happening in that campaign. What about Venezuela? I mean, it. I fear that that is a ticking time bomb. Um, the people in Venezuela are in the most desperate situation you can imagine. Nothing has changed since the international community led by the Trump White House 
recognize Juan Guaido as the you know new president. Um, but they rolled out this dip, big diplomatic play, and Maduro is still in power, and the military has not peeled off and gone to Guaido's side. And so the question is whether Trump will get pushed to do more and more and more. And they, you know they float this all options around the table. They float the prospect of military intervention. And I don't think anybody thinks that's a good idea. But if you see the state, if you see Venezuela's government collapse, I mean, you want to talk about a caravan. There's going to be a migration crisis like nothing we've ever seen, and it's going to destabilize neighboring countries like Colombia. Um, it's it's a ticking time bomb. It's a huge problem. Yeah, on that subject, the decision to, I, I don't know if it'll be executed, but to cut off aid, the suggestion of cutting off aid to these Central American countries from where much of this migration is yeah. coming seems, it either is counterproductive or it is productive if you want to, exacerbate what is already a serious situation at the border. That's that's my analysis, too. I mean, basically, Trump threatened to cut off $500 million in aid to Guatemala, El Salvador, Honduras. Uh, and that money is designed to make the situation on the ground safer uh, and to help people find jobs and do all sorts of development work that you would think would lead people to want to stay in the country rather than flee. Um, the 2015 survey showed that 39% of migrants from those countries left because they feared for their lives. So a, a bigger, badder fence is not going to keep you out, uh, keep you from leaving if mm -hmm. you're worried about getting killed. So Trump gutting that, those, that money is going to exacerbate the problem. I think that there's a chance that he knows that and he wants the immigration crisis to get worse so we can blame Democrats and demagogue people of color uh, and make that his, his entire issue running to 2020. You obviously still have great passion for these issues. Are you satisfied talking about them? Do you see yourself going back into government? So, I mean, back on sort of the do you miss the White House question, right? I mean, the, the coolest thing I got to do every day was if I didn't understand a problem in the world, I could pick up the phone and ask somebody who is one of the world's foremost experts, then they helped me figure it out. And one of the things I used to do all the time was I would connect reporters with NSC staffers uh, on background and basically I'd patch the call through and I'd mute it and I'd just listen and learn. And so I tried to recreate that a bit on Pod Save the World on my show. And it has really been uh, a joy to reconnect with some of those people to, you know, help folks who listen understand what's going on in the world because there's acronyms, there's terminology. You yeah. feel stupid asking basic questions because, you know, and why would you? Why, why would you know the domestic political situation in Venezuela? But it's fascinating. And if you don't pay attention and if we as voters don't care about these issues and, and vet our candidates uh, before we vote for them on their foreign policy views, I think we, we lose out. So, like, that's that's been the fun part for me. I don't think I would ever go back in. It would just be... I couldn't imagine doing that job with a different group of people. You know, it's funny. Most of the people I talked to who've worked in the White House say the same thing, which was, it was the greatest job I ever had, and I'd never do it again. To me, it would feel like going back to your college dorm where you lived with all your best friends senior year, and there's just a new group of people there. And it would almost feel kind of sad in a way. It's also it's also true that everybody who lived in your dorm moved out to L.A. So That's you're, right. You're still living together. My dorm is yeah. West so, Coast. just on the subject of this enterprise that you guys have uh, created, you're touring. You you're rock stars on the road and 
all of that stuff. Um, you're also four white guys at a time when that's um, that is, is is not it's not cool, right? Yeah. To, how problematical has that been? I mean, it's certainly not reflective of the Democratic Party. I should Party. say you're four very white <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It, it doesn't reflect the diversity of the party and the diversity of the issues that people care about. And so the first thing we did was try to rectify that internally through our hiring. So I think we're now majority women uh, at the company. I think we're majority women of color at the company. Um, and that was an important step for us. And then the next piece was we want, you know, Pod Save America is a show and it will always be the show that it is right now, uh, barring some change. Crooked Media is a, a network. And so we wanted to develop shows with, with people who were not like us, who didn't share our views, who weren't white guys from the Obama administration. And so, you know, one of the early shows was you know, Pod Save the People with Duran McKesson and, and their team. And so that's been a big focus of our to use this sort of platform and the company we've created to develop and then market those shows because there's such important voices that aren't being heard. Uh, and we think that we can do something about that. Do you, um, I mean, the, the Obama gestalt, as it were, mm -hmm. uh, that has become, at least on Twitter and in that world, mm -hmm. uh, a source of great debate as we enter this campaign and the notion that uh, Obamaites are uh, compromisers and um, too establishment oriented and so on. How much, how much of feedback uh, like that have you guys gotten? Because you obviously are an important voice on the left. I think that, I mean, there's some feedback. I do think it's a lot of people working the refs on Twitter. And not working the refs for bad reasons. They might sincerely believe that a more maximalist, progressive view is the best way to campaign. But I think one of the things that the White House job taught me was how hard the job is and how hard it is to get things done. And if you think that Barack Obama was passing Medicare for All instead of the Affordable Care Act, you don't know much about the Democratic caucus at the time. Uh, or Joe Lieberman. Or yeah, Mitch this Montgomery. this point bothers me. I may have said this before here, but uh, you know, obviously he supported a public option in the Affordable Care Act, uh, couldn't get it passed, and then you're faced with a choice: well, do you do nothing if you can't get everything that you want? And when I run across people who have been helped by the Affordable Care Act, as I do all the time, uh, I think about what would have happened if we had said no. Mm -hmm. We said no, no public option, no Affordable Care Act. That would have been a incredibly callous and brittle decision, given the tens of millions of people who've been helped by the law. Right, and and also you know what twenty million people have health care because of the Affordable Care Act, and then you have a whole bunch of states that refuse to do Medicaid expansion right. for purely partisan reasons. So. There's but complexity. just all the safeguards, you know, I have a child with a pre-existing condition yeah. and, um, you know, the lifetime caps and all the things mm -hmm. that were banned by the Affordable Care Act. Right. Uh, you know, it, it is, it's a frustrating discussion. Yeah, it's not incremental if you have health care now and you didn't before, right? For mm -hmm. you, it's everything. Yeah. Um, I think if you look at other areas like foreign policy, you could probably argue that 
if Obama could have the Afghanistan decision back in 2009, that troop increase might have been a lot smaller, uh, if at all, right? I mean, I don't know that we made the situation materially that much better. We need to get to negotiations faster, which the Trump administration is now doing. Um, The second term, I think they got there with the Iran deal, with Cuba, right? I mean, they were were able to be um, more flexible. But, you know, these are, these are not – look, look at – we got all our troops out of Iraq, and we thought that the Iraqi security forces, after a decade-plus of training and equipping uh, them, were ready to fight ISIS. And they, they ran away, you know, and we had to send troops back in to stabilize the region. So – Mistake this, to, send, uh, to take the troops out in the first place? I don't know. Like, I, I don't know that a 10,000 uh, – person residual force would have prevented that from happening but it very well may have Mm -hmm. so where do you see yourself 10 years from now the worst possible question i'm just wondering you know we're sitting here in your worldwide headquarters uh and uh and i'm wondering if you see yourself uh behind these microphones uh you know 10 years from now man in 10 years when we all have driverless cars and podcasts are a thing of the past, right? I mean, it's a great question. I have no idea. I think when we step back and look at the media landscape, you see all this infrastructure on the right that is powerful. Fox News, then you have your Breitbarts and your Federalists, like these billionaire propped up right-wing propaganda machines. Now, we never wanted to be close to that. But I do think progressive media uh, needs to grow. We need to do more. There's not a lot of outlets on the left where you're going to get a reliably uh, progressive point of view. So I'd like for us to think about ways to grow crooked media to be even a greater counterweight to the Fox Newses of the world. The path from here to there is, I have no clue. I need someone smarter than me to, to tell me where to go. But we're lucky in that we don't have a lot of legacy infrastructure uh, you know, we don't own a bunch of cable channels in various places. We're just able to start from, you know, 2017 and, and go from there. Well, knowing you as long as I have and all, uh, all you guys, I, I'm, I'm proud of what you've accomplished. And Thanks, I, I, love, uh, I love watching you. I can't say that I've been in the audience uh, with screaming, uh, screaming young people. Um, I don't know if I can take that. It's the lionization of you guys. But I had the good fortune of listening to the pre the predecessor to Pod Save America every day in my office. <laughs> That's right. For a couple of years. That's right. So um every day I walk out at a live show and I'm I'm confused why people are there. But uh it's great <laughs> to see people engaged. Really engaged. Yeah. And I don't think it's about us. I think it's about a moment in time where a whole bunch of people uh, decided that they need to make politics a much bigger piece of their life. Well, good for you for recognizing it. Tommy Theotor, always Thank good you. to be with you. Thanks, Ed. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.